The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. It's the final episode of 2021. And so, as always, it's our review of the year. Before we begin our look at the art and heritage worlds over the past 12 months, a reminder that you can find all the latest news at theartnewspaper.com and on our app for iOS and Android, which you can get from the App Store or Google Play. And why not sign up to the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter so you're ready for all the big stories in the new year. Go to the website and the newsletter link is at the top left of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for a range of our other newsletters, including the monthly Art Market Eye. Now, to look at the year's biggest stories, I'm joined by three members of the art newspaper team. Martin Bailey is a London correspondent, Anna Brady is our art market editor, and Jane Morris is one of our editors at large, and also an editor at large at Culture Shop Media. Anna, Martin and Jane, it's been another tumultuous year, and I want to begin by talking about the climate crisis, which obviously was the focus of so much attention because of the COP26 summit. On the podcast this year, we've explored this in various ways. We've talked about fossil fuel sponsors at the Science Museum. We talked about the Gallery Climate Coalition, and we talked about the existential threat to, to Venice from rising sea levels. But have you actually seen any substantial action on climate change in the art world? Jane. Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of discussions going on and various groups and coalitions are forming to discuss how the art world might respond to climate change. And I'm separating this now from artists because artists have obviously been making work around issues of the environment for, for many years now. Um, I mean, I certainly think there's, there's discussions going on in museums. I mean, things like, is it possible to build exhibitions and only ship from one country? That's one of the things that I know some people are looking at. People are certainly looking at packaging Packaging. They're certainly looking at the way their shipping and transporting work. Um, so maybe we'll see fewer uh, couriered flights on scheduled flights with an object and a curator sitting next to it. So, that, so people are looking at some practical things, you know, like that. I think there's also discussions which will probably fit into our discussions later on about museums and coronavirus, about extending the length of exhibitions as well. But I think. Climate change is a real challenge for the art world. It's a very international world and it revolves both in the art market and in the institutional world and in the Biennale world around shipping large amounts of artwork around the world. Even if we didn't all go and travel to see the exhibitions or the Biennales, that's a sort of fundamental aspect of the art world. And I think people are going to find that very difficult to unravel. Anna, that was something that was palpable. You've been to a couple of art fairs this year at last after a long break. Um, And it's so palpable, isn't it, when you're in those settings that, you know, international galleries, work being shipped from various places. It it feels very impossible in some ways to impose a kind of ecological framework onto that fundamental part of the art world, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I think the biggest sort of harm that we do is visitor travel. Obviously, there is the sort of energy usage of um, obviously the larger the gallery the more energy it uses as well but um Julie's bicycle did a report and they have sort of found it you can't use these as entirely reliable statistics but they have sort of worked out that the art world's co2 contribution is about 17 million tons of co2 a year 
including visitor travel and about 18 million without it. So it's people flying around the place to things like art fairs or biennales um, or to go to see exhibitions or just simply, you know, it being a normal practice to jump on a plane and go and see a work of art um, for a day on the other side of the world. So I think it's that practice that is quite so harmful and that would require a major shift in our sort of consciousness as well. And just in, it, in terms of expectation, that had to happen during COVID. But as we all saw, you know, in November with the big New York sales in with Miami, with the big fair that's just happened, so many people were jumping on the plane and going straight back to them and um, jumping on private jets as well and going straight back to them. So... I think that that behavioural shift is the biggest thing that we've got to change. And obviously there are the kind of lower level things like going back to straps and blankets um, to package artworks and things rather than the very sophisticated but sort of one use um, packaging that, that we've grown to use. So there are other elements um, like that on the sort of more prosaic level. But yeah, I think it's just simply the expectation that you will travel around the world year round jumping on and off planes that really has to stop to make any real difference. I wanted to move on now to an issue which I think is something we've talked about on this year in review every year and I think we will continue talking about it because because it is such a massive issue and that's restitution. Martin, there have been big moves in restitution this year. Um, tell us where we're at in terms of, for instance, the Benin bronzes. Yes, it's an issue which has been brewing for many, many years, but it really has come to a head um, this year, I would say. And uh, as you rightly say, the Benin bronzes um, really epitomise the problem or the situation um, uh, or the opportunities, just depending on how you look at it. Um, in the case of the Benin bronzes, uh, there have been two factors at work, I think. Uh, one is sort of the Black Lives Matter and uh, the, that sort of background, which is very important. Uh, the second important thing that's happened, and, and that's this year, is the decision to build a new museum in Nigeria, in Edo City. And that has been approved by the Nigerian federal government, the state government, and most importantly by the Oba of Benin, the ruler. And I think once that museum is open, there's going to be great pressure to return the Benin bronzes, and particularly on the British Museum, which has by far the most important collection of Benin bronzes, along with those in Berlin. Um, the museum is supposed to open in 2025. It may be delayed slightly, um, but um, it's going to be an issue on the table until then. And Jane... Other nations beyond Britain, where the British Museum is, of course, have made big strides in terms of repatriation, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one, this one, actually, because in many ways, I mean, the restitution story has been going on for really, um, what, 20 or 30, more like 30 years now. Uh, and I was, I was thinking, Martin, while you were talking, it was interesting that a lot of this actually started with Holocaust restitution. Um, there was a very important conference in 98, I think, in Washington, where museums seriously started discussing the return of Nazi-era loot. But there were questions, even at the time, about why African, particularly colonial-era, um, looted objects weren't under discussion at that point. And I think also in America, there was discussion even then about Native American uh, pre-Columbian objects. So it's been kind of hovering around in the air for a good 30 years. Um, and in fact, there have been 
previously some returns from some European museums. And even in Glasgow, um, Glasgow Museums returned a Lakota community ghost dance shirt at, at the end of the 90s. So it's been one of these issues that has been sort of rising and then falling and then rising again. And then, as Martin says, in the last maybe three, four years, would you say, Martin, it's really started to come into sharp focus again. I think in Europe, of course, there was this speech in 2017 by President Macron in Burkina Faso, where he raised the the likelihood of French colonial era objects going back. I mean, it's obviously a huge issue for European countries that had colonies. So it is all those countries, Britain, Germany, France, the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, that are particularly discussing this issue at the moment. There have been some examples of return already. Um, America has started, America has, American museums have been traditionally as resistant as the European museums, but very recently objects have gone back from the National Gallery of Art in Washington, from the Met and the Smithsonian. So all over the Western world, I think we're starting to see movement. Um, I mean, I think what was very interesting as well, and you can see why the pressure is growing, in the research that um, was done in France in response to President Macron about how many objects there were in French museums, this amazing figure came out, I think, that 80 or 90 percent of sub-Saharan African uh, artefacts of cultural heritage are in Western museums, or in the West at least, Western museums, Western universities, Western private collections. So I think we can all see that that's a state of affairs that is unlikely to remain like this for very much longer. Indeed. And Martin, what is the British Museum's position? Because obviously we can see there's huge activity going on in, among other museums. There's lots of open engagement with the idea of repatriation. There's active repatriation happening. But what's the British Museum doing? Well, it, it is um, at a sort of curatorial level, there are good relations between the British Museum and their colleagues in Nigeria. The British Museum takes the position that it cannot return or restitute on a permanent basis material from their collection uh, because of the British Museum Act, which prohibits it in normal circumstances. Now, this is something that could be changed. So um, it may be on the agenda, but it would need the government to decide to change it. And the British Museum has said that it's willing to lend objects. There's the question of whether recipient countries want to accept loans, because therefore they're then accepting that the British Museum has a legitimate legal right. So it is quite complicated. And from the British Museum's point of view, of course, the situation is complicated because of the Parthenon marbles and the Greek claims. And uh, I think one actually has to, and I'm sure the museum is looking and trying to differentiate between the different situations, because not all uh, restitution claims are the same. You know, each is different, and each needs to be looked at on its own merits. I wonder, Jane, is one of the issues here that there isn't an agreement about the nature of empire in Britain, in the sense that I don't think there are, again, there's going to be anyone that is going to strongly voice the idea that Nazi loot should not be returned. Whereas in Britain, there's an, there's an ongoing, enormous debate about the nature of empire. I mean, I wouldn't just say it's in Britain. I think it's in all the former imperial powers. Um, I, I think that's right. It's a very contested area of history. And, and I was thinking about this before we came to this podcast. And I was thinking, it's so odd. You know, when I was at school, um, I seem to recall that we did British, European 
American and Russian history. British history stopped around 1700 and then the European history restarted again somewhere after the Treaty of Versailles, so 1919, and basically conveniently missed out the entire imperial period. And I think that that isn't uncommon of people my age and possibly even younger as well. I mean, it's not an era that's been widely taught in in schools and in universities. Obviously, it is much more now. So I think there's also quite a lot of ignorance about what really happened. And I think this is a problem for all the European countries. It's an interesting one, though, because as Martin was saying, it would obviously make a difference. Um, well, this is, this is always a tricky one, isn't it? Do we want the government to step in on this subject or don't we? Certainly, I would say in France, um, Macron is using this as a kind of soft power. I mean, in fact, there's been quite a lot of pushback uh, amongst French museums. You know, not very much has actually been restituted despite um, Macron's speech. But quite a lot of people at the time looked at that as Macron trying to, I suppose, gain new validity amongst the uh, former Francophone colonies. I mean, and other people are doing this too. I mean, it's quite clear that China, I mean, China, I think, uh, rode in on the side of Greece saying that, um, you know, it, it would support, you know, Greece's efforts to... Uh, to to secure the Parthenon marbles. But of course, that's quite interesting because Greece is is part of the Belt and Road China initiative. You know, China owns the port at Piraeus relatively near the Acropolis Museum. So I think think we're going to see a lot of not just museums discussing this issue and not just populations discussing the issue, but governments deciding what kind of lines they want to take as the world order is reordering with the growth of China and indeed Africa. Um, Martin, you've reported very recently on the Parthenon marbles because there have been mutterings of a different approach by the UK government. But how substantial is that? I'm not sure there's been very much shift. Uh, I suppose the fact that we have a prime minister who is interested in the classical world may mean he's paying more attention to it. Um, But I think it's pretty low down the government's priorities. And I think the government um, is quite happy to hand over this very sensitive issue to the British Museum um, and say it's their responsibility. And that's what's essentially happened. I mean, the dispute over the marbles has been going on for well over a century and it won't uh, go away. There's still great pressure from Greece for the return Of course, we we are in a different situation now that the marbles have been taken off the Acropolis, and I think it would be an entirely different situation if one was returning something that was going back on the monument. But they can't do that for environmental reasons. Uh, So I think the Parthenon marbles dispute will rumble on for many years. Indeed it will. Jane, you mentioned indigenous art in terms of US museums, North American museums in particular, and and I think that one of the things that we've reported on a lot this year has been the representation of indigenous objects in museums and just indigenous representation more generally, actually. And there was an interesting appointment at the Met of somebody called Patricia Norby, who is who is an associate curator of Native American art. It's a new role. And 
she said something quite interesting and I just want to read it because I think it's, it speaks to this whole issue more generally. She says, currently museums and other cultural institutions are undergoing a major transformation of historical proportions by publicly acknowledging their own colonial legacies and reckoning with long-term institutional practices that have created long separations between collections and source communities. And that seems to me that that gets to the nub of it. It's about source communities and how museums are responding to them. And, and, and they're responding to it in very different ways, aren't they? Um, yes, but I think this does go back to the, to the point I made earlier about knowing more about our own histories. I mean, there is a reason that, that so many uh, African objects have ended up in museums in London, Paris, uh, Berlin, Brussels. Um, and there is a reason that American museums are are filled with indigenous objects from cultures that in many ways have been destroyed um, and populations moved to reservations. And I think some of this is us coming to terms, very much coming to terms with history and why museums look the way they do. Anna, repatriation doesn't just apply to museums, does it? There, There is some element of repatriation going on in the market too. Yeah, there is. And obviously this area is more the antiquities market and also um, the market of sort of in African art and ethnographic art is under huge scrutiny at the moment and in many ways is trying to sort of show that it's doing something about it. Um, and certainly in New York, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has been really cracking down in recent years on antiquities, particularly looted antiquities, and trying to restitute them, chiefly led by Matthew Bogdanus, who is a sort of big character that's chief of their antiquities trafficking uh, unit. Um, recently, in, in literally the past past week, um, Michael Steinert, who's a 81-year-old collector, has collected for years um, in the antiquities field, has been ordered by the DA office to give back 180 looted antiquities, which are worth around $70 million combined, and he's been told there are no actual charges, but he's got to restitute them to the 11 different countries that they come from. And he's been given a lifetime ban in buying antiquities, which is quite unusual. I don't think that's been done before, but th- there's certainly been things like that. And then also in September, there was a big ceremony in Washington um, to mark the return of an ancient Gilgamesh uh, tablet, which is going back to Iraq after it was seized from the Hobby Lobby. But again, um, you know, the Manhattan District Attorney was involved in that. So there were certainly quite a lot of sort of big efforts. And, and some of this is, I mean, it's actually happening, but it's also quite sort of performative. They make sure that they mark these things with um, ceremonies as well. So, yeah, it's certainly something that we're seeing on the commercial side of things, too. Indeed. Um, I wanted to talk about something which Jane has picked up on in relation to restitution, which is this idea of history and, and how it's taught and, and how embedded it is in our concepts of national pride etc etc in in relation to museums there are culture wars going on various culture wars around the world Um, in the UK it seems particularly virulent at the moment Martin do you want to talk about about you know the British government and culture wars this notional culture war what what's your take on it well, I suspect it will be rather a temporary phenomenon. And museums this year have certainly made great efforts to try and present things to bring in ethnic communities, and we have many more female artists. Uh, so there is a big emphasis on it. Uh, in a way, it's redressing the balance, and it will go. This will go on for a few years, and then we will have a more equitable presentations in museums. I think the government will stay out of it, essentially. I don't think the government has much to gain, and I think uh, the decisions will basically be made by museums. 
But Jane, we are seeing boards of museums being fiddled with, aren't we, by, by government. That seems to me to be a fairly aggressive stance by the government in this area. Well, I'm beginning to wonder, though, if um, they may well have backed off, actually, after the initial bad press around it. Because I think, as Martin said, I mean, they have a lot to lose by getting into this area and actually not that much to gain. I mean, I, I feel like we need to separate out in this conversation what I would consider basic sort of fairness, you know, looking around what's in the museum and asking how it got there, um, looking around the museum and asking who and who isn't represented. And I think that that is a, it's an ongoing progressive trend that I think will just continue and it's right that it should. I mean, to me, culture wars are something different and I don't actually think that we do have a true culture war in the UK. I I know some people might find that a controversial statement, but I don't think we are polarised in the way that America is. I think we thought we might have been during Brexit, because during Brexit, it did look as if people were aligning on very, very different sides, all kinds of cultural issues were coming into it. Um, And people felt that people on the other side were in some way morally wrong, which is one of the characteristics of a true culture war. But my feeling is that now Brexit is passed and most people don't want to reopen those wounds anymore. I don't think we are in that kind of very, very divided world that the states are in. I mean, it's quite interesting. The Policy Institute at uh, King's College did actually do some research on this in the summer. um, And they found that while probably about half the population have very strong views on some of the classic culture war issues, things like the statues, but on different sides, a bit less than 50%. The other 50% were really pretty moderate about these issues. And, um, you know, Times Radio did a kind of poll that was quite interesting, where I think only 7% actually knew what culture wars were. Um, You know, quite a lot of people don't really know what woke is. And I, I sometimes think that because of the field we work in, which is obviously about art and culture and history and heritage things like these statue discussions are a really big deal for us but I do wonder how much they resonate into the wider population and that's why I slightly think that um, Oliver Dowden having entered this field you know he was very much saying uh, museums should retain sculptures and explain them or public sculptures should be retained in situ and explained so he kind of made a position um, and Certainly there were trustees that felt that they had not been reappointed because they didn't hold opinions that matched with Oliver Dowden's. Um, I'm not sure really how well he did out of that. I mean, he's no longer the culture secretary. And, and, you know, a number of politicians have warned other politicians. I mean, Tony Blair warned everybody, uh, but particularly Keir Starmer, to retreat from this area because you can have left-wing pop culture wars by the way just like right-wing ones you can have left-wing populists just like you can have right-wing populists I mean Corbyn was arguably uh, a left-wing uh, populist um, so I'm rather inclined to agree with Martin I think we will have flashpoints we will have the media particularly we will have not just right-wing right and left-wing polemical critics on both sides, will take a pop at, you know, museum labels, I think, like the current Hogarth exhibition. We will get certain people, and politicians and the media are the main place where, in Britain, these things are being discussed. But my feeling is that it's nothing like the situation that exists 
in the US. I mean, there people are marshaled around really big issues like religion, abortion, or, or even what kind of religious person you are. You know, are you uh, an evangelical Protestant or a very strict Catholic or a very orthodox member of um, Judaism, all of whom tend to align around being anti-abortion, you know, anti-trans rights, for example. I don't think we've got that kind of polarisation here. Right. You're right in saying that, uh, that a small part of the population is debating this and getting, getting into a storm about it. But at the same time, the decisions are made between government and the people that are running the cultural spaces, for instance. So if there is a general feeling among curators and other people that, that decolonising is a serious project that really needs to be um, put into action and the government is resisting that, to what extent does it have the potential to be inflamed? Martin, I don't know if you have a view. Well, I don't think it is correct that the government is trying to squash that debate. And I think the government is basically leaving it up to the museums. And um, I think museum curators in general um, are fairly sensitive about these issues. And um, presentations are and will change. Uh, You can't suddenly change all labels in the British Museum overnight because of the tens of thousands of objects. But uh, I think curators um, are very well aware of um, shifting attitudes and the need to cooperate with different groups and to um, show things in a way that are meaningful and to appeal to a wider um, audience uh, who come and see the objects in their collection. So I certainly don't think there's a cultural war or battle there are cultural issues and there always are and they need to be faced and they need to be addressed i mean there are certainly people who would like to see change happen faster i'm sure there are people within within museums including amongst their trustees who who you know are less engaged in this um, agenda than than in others but but i agree with martin i think I think curators know that readings of history change, understanding of symbols change, um, you know, that there was bound to be a debate about who gets memorialised in statues. I mean, I think you could even apply that to statues that are being put up today. I mean, a number of statues have gone up recently that um, many in the art world are very, you know, unhappy with on their artistic grounds. So I think, I agree with Martin, I think this is an, it's very much an ongoing project, decolonising the museum, and there will be other issues like this. um, But decolonising the museum is a major project, I think, for all museums now. Um, And I think, yes, we might get the odd politician who thinks he's going to or she is going to score a bit of cultural capital. It is true that we've had some interesting choices of culture ministers, to put it uh, politely. But again, traditionally, we've had very few very good culture ministers. It's not a portfolio that many politicians are really interested in, sad to say. Indeed, it's not. Um, I wanted to just briefly mention a, a, a situation where, where we've talked about sort of cultural wars happening elsewhere. I mean, in, in Poland, there is there is active interference with cultural project over there, for instance. So in there's, there's a Cheta Museum. The government is appointing conservative people in place to effectively undermine all the work that's been going on in that museum. Jane? Yeah, well, I mean, Poland has all but almost entirely banned abortion. Um, it is, it's brought in incredibly discriminatory rules against the lesbian, gay, trans communities. Very similar things are happening in Hungary. So again, for me, there is, there is a much bigger project at work in these governments. Um, and these are indeed 
you know, very right-wing conservative governments, mostly allied um, with the Catholic Church in both cases, I believe. And the problems there go far beyond what's happening in museums. But obviously, it's, it's a difficult environment for artists and museums to be working in at the moment. Indeed. Obviously, the whole statues debate that you you talked about, Jane, the very shocking beginning of the year, of course, was what we saw happening in the capital, the riots in the capital. And there was a tremendous visual shock that happened as a result of that, which was seeing, for, for instance, Confederate flags being carried through the capital in the sight of the paintings of abolitionists. And one of the things that, that again, is, a, is an ongoing um, story over in the US is, that, is the presence of Confederate generals in towns and cities, but also, for instance, in the capital itself. And we learned from Sarah Beetham, an expert in historic statuary in the States, that there are still there still remain Confederate people represented in the statuary halls of the capital. And I think one of the, one of the interesting things is how impossible it's proving for US lawmakers to pass legislation that will actually remove them. So a bill has passed through the House twice in a row, two years in a row, but it stalls in the Senate and it still is stalling in the Senate. So I think that one of the things that emerges from all these discussions about statuary is the difficulty across the world of actually passing legislation that makes any difference to the debate. Uh, We're going to stay with America when we come back after this short break, but thanks for your thoughts so far. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. As 2021 draws to a close, this holiday season, explore more buying and selling opportunities with Christie's Private Sales, a seamless service for transacting outside of the auction calendar. From fine and decorative arts to jewellery and watches, Christie's global team of specialists is here to help shape your collection, connect you with the right people and broker a sale discreetly at a pace that suits you. Discover more on christies.com slash private sales. Welcome back. So I said we'd stick with America and we're going to talk about an issue which has really rumbled on for a number of years now, but is really coming to a head in all sorts of ways. And that's unionisation in American museums. Jane, this is a massive issue, isn't it? Uh, yes. And I think it seems to be one that's uh, really gathering momentum. I mean, I think we saw a few major museums last year voted to unionise. Um, Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, both really very major museums and this year the staff at uh, Mass Mocha, Hispanic Society, the Whitney uh, and the Brooklyn Museum have all voted to unionise and there are probably others. This has been coming for a long time but I, I don't know if any of you remember but in 2019 this kind of Google sheet went around. So basically for any listeners who didn't, a number of museums got together. I think it came out of Philadelphia. I think it came out of some young curators at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and they started to share a Google sheet which they called the Art Museum Salary Transparency document and it encouraged people to write down which museum they belonged to what level they were at and what the what the pay was and it became obvious really very quickly that many staff and not just absolute entry level many 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 staff were on a kind of 30,000 to 50,000 dollar mark which is not great by american standards i mean you've got to remember that there's no nhs <laughs> in the US. Um, People have to contribute to their medical bills. Uh, Many people are paying school fees. I mean, these are, by American standards, really very low salaries. And on top of that, people are required to have MAs, 
PhDs, a lot of work experience, a lot, a lot of a lot of employment experience. So, at the same time, the boards are filled with millionaires and billionaires. And senior museum staff are very, very well paid. I mean, vastly better paid than anywhere else in the UK or Europe. Um, You know, salaries in the several millions in some cases. Now, you could argue that that's partly because directors' jobs include a vast amount of fundraising from high net worth individuals. But then increasingly, that's the case in other countries, too. And we don't see those kind of salary levels. So I think this gap between the people at the top and the amount of money and the amount of money that American museums have for acquisitions and expansions, and yet they don't seem to want to reward their staff. I could see similar things happening here, I should add, because museum work is very badly paid in the UK also. Same problem, very high entry level qualifications very low starting salaries, but it's probably less aggravated because most of our top museum staff are uh, are essentially civil servants, really, um, and their, their their salary is is pretty tightly capped. So I think I think that's what's behind it. COVID has, of course, hastened it. Um, I mean, again, there was this very interesting survey by one of the unions which said that um, I think it was like two hundred and twenty, two hundred and thirty. Um, cultural institutions got half of the 1.5 billion paycheck um, protection program money, but they still laid off 14 and a half thousand people. So you can understand that this is all turning into a uh, something of a a perfect storm. Indeed, and uh, there was a very powerful piece that was written by a, ge- a former guest on this podcast, actually Dana Copel, who worked at the New Museum. She was an editor at the New Museum, and she in in that piece, which was written in the Baffler, she chronicled this process of working in in quite a prestigious role for a museum and the microaggressions and the systemic processes which led to the lower pay for staff and also fundamentally as you say job security this is that, that's a key factor and it to people who work in European museums it might come as a massive surprise that there isn't just an automatic union representation but it's, it's extraordinary because it's only now that so many of these workers are suddenly collectively bargaining and getting rights to job security to better pay etc and one of the things that emerges from that piece by Dana Copel and from all the reporting that we've done on this is that the union people are saying well people working in galleries and museums like their work they like the institutions that they're working for but the conditions in which they're working are untenable and actually often below the living wage and it's striking to me that it seems like there's a real momentum in the way that the groups of people, these unionised workers, are fighting that idea, that which was in fact a slogan going way back to the 70s, I think, which is, you can't eat prestige. Yes, prestigious jobs in museums get you a certain level of social cachet, but they're not ultimately providing lots of people with the money to survive. So I think this is a really crucial process. Let's talk about COVID because obviously the the idea of unionisation, as you say, and job precarity is deeply connected to COVID. Martin, you've done lots of research about the effect of COVID on the finances of museums. Tell us what what you found out. Well, obviously, it's been absolutely disastrous, the effect of coronavirus on museums. Um, Visitor numbers have been slashed. Um, Even when the museums have been open, 
they've probably had roughly 20% of their normal visitor level and they've been closed for most of the year. Um, the very few tourists, foreign tourists coming to the UK um, or indeed traveling in Europe. So visitor numbers are really vastly down and that has an enormous impact on self-generated income which is so important for museums and increasingly so. And by that I mean the money they're making from cafes and shops um, letting out their rooms for um, evening receptions and everything. So the museums have been very badly hit. There's been some compensation in the UK from the government, which has stepped in to provide various forms of help. And I think without that, the museums would not have survived. But it's been extremely damaging. And um, it's still so difficult to plan. We don't really know where we'll be in a month or two's time with regard to COVID. And even when COVID goes away, it's going to take um, at least a couple of years for tourism to recover and for public confidence and interest in museums. Um, so it's a fairly bleak situation. And also picking up from a point that Anna made earlier about international travel, I mean, the big museums are, of course, very aware that an enormous amount of their visitorship comes from international tourism. And in the light of climate change, um, it is questionable long term about how much or how wise it is for them to rely on that in future. I mean, I asked Maria Balshaw what the biggest sort of environmental problem at the Tate was, and she said it's, it's our international visitors, but they absolutely depend on them. Anna, what's the impact of COVID on the art market? There are many different art markets and it's affected them all in different in different ways. I think like with all these things, the lower end tends to be much worse hit than the higher end. The physical fairs have obviously had a really tough time of it because they really haven't been able to go ahead until really the kind of latter part of this year. And now next year, everything's looking very uncertain again. So Braffa, for instance, in Brussels in January has already been cancelled. Um, uh, people are wondering whether TAFAF Maastricht in March will will go ahead in that case. Um, so, and if it does, that, that'll that be sort of the, it won't have run for two years, is then cancelled. So, so the fairs have had a tough time. The galleries have also had a difficult time because um, a lot of their, their sales traditionally are driven by these fairs and the online viewing rooms don't work so well. The auction houses, however, have actually adapted incredibly well and they've kind of managed to push themselves to the fore as a sort of primary selling mechanism for a lot of for a lot of people who want to sell their works um their secondary market works and their primary market works so it's interesting that just this morning i received art tactics latest report which is their year in review and so they have worked out that the total auction sales this, this is just for old masters impressionist modern post-war and contemporary art so it doesn't include um antiques or any of the luxury sector things like that at um phillips christie's and sotheby's so just the three big auction houses they've totaled this year 6.5 billion dollars which is up 74 percent from last year which is a huge rise i mean last year was sort of scrabbling to work out what was happening and how to deal with it but their their live stream sales format seems to be working very well um so that has risen enormously obviously we've had some big new york sales this year which are really really helped them so yeah it's an incredibly incredibly mixed picture it's been difficult um from a jobs perspective referring back to what jane was talking about you don't get unions in the commercial sector so there have been quite a lot of reports of quite a lot of staff particularly those on sort of temporary contracts who've been fairly badly treated and laid off particularly when they work in the logistics side of things as well so yeah so that's been that's been an issue but frankly at the top end 
what is driving that are the super wealthy and the very wealthiest few percent of the world's population have only got a lot richer during the course of COVID is the honest truth of it. And um, so that combined with this new sort of crypto wealth is really driving a lot of those auction sales. I think what's interesting here as well, Anna, is that, I mean, as we both know, as we all know, auctions don't benefit artists. Um, So uh, I I think one of the questions very much in my mind is what's this meaning now for artists who rely on the primary gallery world and how well they are faring? I mean, I don't know if you have anything to say on that, Ben. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one because, again, I'm thinking as we're talking about this, just how COVID has really exaggerated the disparities in the art world between the extremely wealthy who've got richer and between the precarious workers at museums who have lost their jobs, between artists who have can barely afford a studio who've not been able to go to it and therefore not been able to work and the artists who are booming in galleries and at auction. I think the thing I'm taking away most from COVID is that the art world is is more unequal rather than somehow galvanised by this terrible human experience. I don't know about you, Jane. No, I think that's true. I mean, these things go back even further into the uh, financial crash of 2008. I mean, an awful lot of what we're talking about, I think, is the long fallout of that of that financial crash now accelerated by COVID. Indeed. Martin, as you say, we can't know what's happening next uh, in terms of the uh, museums and COVID, because Omicron is is raging in the UK as we speak. We had to change the nature of this discussion. We were all going to meet up, but we're not now. We're sitting in separate rooms. But have museums expressed to you any real sort of almost existential concerns about how they can survive in the coming months and years going forward? How can they? Because this is, this is as you say, it, it's, it's a temporary blip in terms of hopefully the virus will be under control at some point, but it's, it's having long-term impacts, right? Yes, I mean, on the financial side, um, obviously it's going to be very difficult. Uh, there are going to be cuts in terms of acquisitions, or, uh, or we already have seen this in terms of uh, staffing levels. And, you know, the last uh, few decades, museums have done better and better each year, essentially. And there's there's been a sort of assumption that um, things are going to move very, very steadily ahead. That has been squashed. Uh, The other aspect, which also disturbs me and comes back to the question of international travel, is uh, the importance of the, the art world internationally. I mean, people in the art world have always thought globally and so much of the positive interaction that has been has been at a international level and um, that is now endangered and we don't want to go back to being little England again do we or uh, little France or whatever and the fact the art world is so international I think has also been important in international relations and in a wider context because culture has brought us all together and it will be a great shame if COVID um, reverses that wonderful situation. I was really conscious of of that phenomenon and wondering if museums are going to, going to be less risk-taking, looking at the fact that, you know, there's this Vermeer show in Dresden right now, such fanfare about it, and it had to close because um, because of COVID level rises. And this was pre-Omicron in, in Germany. And I think that's the potential implication of lots of this isn't it Jane that that museums become more conservative with programming you've already mentioned the fact that for instance that exhibitions will last longer for some reasons but but also it's going to impact on the 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 ambition of institutions isn't it 
Well, I think that's what they're worried about, yes. And I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of things they're worried about. I think most museums around the world were probably surprised how long they were left in lockdown. I don't know what you think about that, Martin, but, you know, commercial galleries opened before they did. In some countries, nail spas opened before they did. I, I, should, I should just in, intervene to say that in Holland, I believe brothels opened before museums did. So there we go. I think many museums have been really surprised to find how low down the pecking order they came in the minds of government. And I'm not talking now particularly about the UK government, although them too, but France, um, United States. I mean, I think the California museums were left shut for months and months and months and months and months. So I think that's a problem because some places have been lucky. France has bailed its museums out. But we know that the government is unlikely. Governments across the world are very unlikely to come to the rescue of museums. And most of the other options they've got, I mean, cutting staff is a really unpopular thing to do and as you say hampers what they can do in the future you know we want to have great exhibitions like Vermeer and we want to have challenging exhibitions that aren't necessarily crowd pleasers I must say I I think if I were a museum director I would be looking at a very unpleasant set of options Um, you know a, a report came out only today here that in terms of major high level giving the richest 1% have actually given less between 2019 and 2020. Everyone else, by the way, gave more. But apparently the top 1% has given a fifth less. And, you know, museums have been trying to build private, um, private patronage. Sponsorship is looking very problematic. So I think it's a very, very difficult set of choices now facing museum directors. And I have to say I am glad I'm not one of them. Indeed. And just to throw it into sort of some sort of perspective, there was this bill that was announced in Congress in the States in October with a certain amount of fanfare that there was a $300 million package, which was called the Creative Economy Revitalization Act. And of course, $300 million sounds like a substantial amount of money. But when you think there are 50 states in, in the United States, and when you think of the kind of sums that are being paid for works of art, in galleries and auctions, it does throw into relief the amount of money that's being given publicly to museums across the world. And the States obviously is a very special case. But while we're talking about money, let's move on to the market. Um, Anna, this is your uh, territory. Um, The first thing we're going to talk about, I'm afraid, from my point of view, is NFTs. Um, It's one of the big buzzwords of the year. Tell us about NFTs. I'm amazed we've actually got this far without talking about NFTs. Um, It's really extraordinary, actually, to have something like this time last year. I think somebody sort of mentioned and tried to explain the NFT concept to me. And I sort of sat there with my quill and thought it'll never catch on. It's just ridiculous. Nobody will get it. Um, And then suddenly in March, we had this Beeple sale. And then since then, it's just been completely unhinged. It's totally taken over the contemporary art market. We have to say that there's a whole load of the art world that really don't give a toss about NFTs at all. But it has um, really taken over the art market. It's also been a huge cash injection as well. It's really helped them out. They've suddenly got a whole new sector of the market that's incredibly hot, has brought in these sort of... It's basically been like the gateway drug for the kind of crypto wealth that they have been desperately trying to attract for a long time with but with analogue art, really. They've kind of suddenly found this digital format that is really, it speaks the same language as a lot of the, the younger, wealthier 
collected or, or would be collectors that they really, really wanted to attract in. It totally speaks their language. They've often been investing in this anyway. Um, so yeah, NFTs have suddenly come in since that Beeple sale for $69.3 million back in March, um, which was done by Christie's and so bought these NFTs really into the mainstream of the market. It's only accelerated since then. And then in December at our bars in Miami Beach, because it hadn't really kind of, I mean, yes, they've been sold by the main auction houses, but it hadn't really kind of translated into, say, the art fair context, aside from the odd booth. Um, so suddenly in Miami, um, you really had this kind of coming of age, I suppose, of NFTs within the mainstream art world. And there were so many um, NFT projects that happened. Pace has launched Pace Verso, um, which is concentrating on NFTs. They sold um, numerous NFTs at the fair, including one for just over half a million dollars, which in NFT world doesn't sound like that <laughs> that much. Um, so, uh, so yeah, suddenly I think a lot of people sort of saw that as being a kind of melding of the traditional kind of art fair world and the NFT world and probably something, I don't think it's going away next year. I think it's a very volatile market. Normally that's seen as a bad thing, but I think actually in this in this world, they don't really see volatility as being a particularly bad thing. That's just kind of par for the course. It's a young market. It's a really unregulated market as well. That will probably change this year. And if it does, that will probably dampen the market a little bit, some of this frenzy. Um, so, so yeah, I think next year we'll see there will undoubtedly be a lot of change. They are absolutely not going anywhere. I think the auction houses are planning on piling in, you know, in, in further on this. Sotheby's has launched its metaverse and is hiring a lot um, for that side of its business as well. Um, so, yeah, and I think it probably will change the sort of nature of the art world um, or certainly the art market in future permanently. From a purely art perspective... Why should we care? It's a good point. I don't know <laughs> we should do. Aesthetic value doesn't come into this hugely. I have to say that. I think a lot, a lot of the time you get told about these NFT works, and we may even write about them, but you probably struggle to recall what they actually looked like, some of these works. It is still really quite crypto kitty, crypto punk basic. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I struggle on that. It's not my world, though. I have to say I'm not a sort of digital art native. I'm the NFTs, I can see them as being a kind of a clever concept. I can also see that they have got some really interesting, we were talking about artists' resales and, and, and artists actually having a cut in some of the auction, big auction figures that, um, that we see. I think that um, in terms of the contracts that artists have for resales, um, they're much, much better in the NFT world. They get much more of a cut. So I think that's interesting. I think maybe we can take some of the models from that world into the rest of the rest of the art world perhaps that will catch on um but yes um aesthetically i don't quite know why we should care but maybe that will become more sophisticated and more important um as this develops as medium and there's more established artists start to experiment with it which we're, we're seeing more now so they may be able to bring a kind of different take to this area well i just thought when you said it's not my world anna i thought that was a, a, a the sort of crucial remark there because I mean, that these are parallel worlds. This isn't... Does anyone disagree with that? I mean, these are parallel worlds. This is not the art world that we call the art world. And just like the street art world is its own world, largely, and occasionally it crosses over, I think, into our world. And I think the NFTs are, are much the same. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned street art because there is a parallel to this in a way, although it wasn't in such a huge way, but in the 2000s when street art suddenly became an auction category, 
that was sort of, again, a lot of the art world viewed that with some suspicion. It brought in a new um, class of collector as well. And it was a very kind of different world. I remember going to one street art auction in about... 2008 2009 or so that was done in east london of all things and people just thought that was really really um very radical at the time um and uh so but yeah it, it's interesting that there are quite a lot of parallels yeah and, and or graffiti in the 1980s so it seems to me that they're parallel worlds that occasionally touch each other rather than emerged world because I'm not sure that these people who are investing in these and it is really interesting that we keep using the word investment because NFTs at the moment seem to only be talked about in terms of money and investment and not in terms of cultural and social value I think that there are there have long there have been people working in digital for what since the 60s and those artists are still part of what I'm calling the art world. They're represented by galleries, they are shown in museums. I can imagine if the metaverse develops the way some people are talking about it, I can absolutely imagine that some really interesting work will be made in that space. And it's very likely that interesting things are being made that I'm not, not so aware of. But, but to me at the moment, the NFT world does seem to be a financial instrument. And one of the things that makes the art world interesting and the museum world interesting and the opera world interesting is because we think that these works have cultural and social value. So I'm interested to see what happens in a world that doesn't have that and seems to be based on something different. Um, Anna, your gateway drug analogy for NFTs in the market, it came to a kind of interesting head in the most recent auctions, didn't it? Because this new kind of collector who not only was buying NFTs, also started buying prestigious works and, and wanted to show off about it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, as I said, it was a sort of gateway drug for somebody like Justin Sun, who is a he's a Chinese sort of crypto entrepreneur. He's CEO of, of BitTorrent and founder of this cryptocurrency platform called Tron. And Justin Sun, he underbid the Beeple work back in March. And he was really vocal about the fact that he lost out on it. And he was quite cross about that. So he tweeted about it, which is an interesting thing that we're seeing a lot of these buyers and NFTs doing is that they're quite open and vocal about buying works or losing out on works on Twitter. So anyway, so Justin Sun lost out on that work. But since then, he's actually been buying other works, much more um, sort of blue chip um, market taste like uh, Warhol, Picasso, and very notably in Sotheby's sale of the Macro collection in November, he spent um, just over $78 million on Linnez, which is this fantastic sculpture by Giacometti, which he's now going to put into a crypto fund and, and then fractionalize and make it, democratize it and make it available to lots of different investors to, to buy a share in it. So that's a really interesting kind of combination of... Um, you know, a new buyer, a new Asian buyer as well, because obviously Asian buyers and young Asian buyers have been incredibly important to market this year and will only continue to be um, coming into this um, sphere sort of via NFTs and then buying a kind of ultimate blue chip work by one of the masters of 20th century art. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting progression. Yeah, I love the, I love the use of this word democratise there. I mean, how much does a share cost in this? I mean presumably several thousands of dollars so I question how democratic any of this is. <laughs> yeah I think democratisation covers all manner of sins. Indeed. The other boom in the market this year that was you've reported on a lot Anna is, is the presence of young artists 
and this is obviously not a new phenomenon, but it's a very much more traditional medium. It's painting, and a lot of young painters are selling for lots of money in the galleries and at auction. Yes, they are. It's it's a really interesting dynamic. This we've, we've covered it a lot this year. I mean, essentially, the art market is an un- unusual one because we got way way too much supply and not enough demand. There's not that many people that buy art for a lot of money, and there are a lot of artists. So what is constructed to make some of those artists very, very in demand, and some, a lot of them are very young, they haven't really had much museum presence either, um, is this kind of constructed like a faux scarcity which and a control of their primary market, which is obviously con- constructed by a lot of the, bi- the big galleries. You have to try and make some of these artists appear like their work is quite scarce and and you should desperately want their work over anybody else's so we've got galleries trying to control the market for certain very very undermined artists at the moment i would say that they are almost entirely painters and almost entirely figurative painters we're talking about the sort of under 45s actually largely under 35 year old artists as well so you've got a case of of collectors vying to get their works from the gallery on the primary market and then when some of their work slips through to the auction market, they're fetching enormous sums of money, um, largely bought by people who can't get them from the galleries in the first place. Um, so there's actually even new, the auction houses this year have actually adopted a new category. So instead of just the post-war and contemporary market, they have the kind of, you know, basically very wet and ready to flip sale category which is the new now or the now or or some variation on that theme so that's interesting because and this this area of the market is booming hugely it's a new sales category it's largely driven by sales in hong kong in hong kong is really sort of where we're seeing a lot of these new very young artist records um set so let's call them the, the young contemporary artists who are sort of under 45 years and art tactic has kind of done the sums on this and worked out quite how much that market has has grown so they sort of say within that sphere from these three main auction houses they made 395 million dollars in sales this year and last year in the equivalent category that was 131 million so again it's a massive massive rise in this field Beeple actually tops that because he counts as an under under 45 year old so he's notched up 82.5 million um in total this year just from two works matthew wong um, he sadly committed suicide a couple of years ago. He comes in second, and 30 of his works have sold for $37 million. So that actually shows you quite far how far ahead people is just with two works. Um, what's quite interesting, though, about this is we have covered this area of the market, and there's been a lot of young women whose works have maybe been sold at um, sort of via their gallery for just a few thousand people like Flora Yuknovich, and then they've appeared at auction a couple of years later and sold for high six-figure or um, low seven-figure sums. What's interesting when you look at it overall, though, is that actually in the top 10 artists in this, ca- in this young contemporary artist category, only two of them are women. They're still almost entirely men. So only Avery Singer at number four and Dana Schutz at number seven, they're, they're the only women in the top 10. That's still a lot better than the other sectors of the market. But it's interesting because I kind of... I, that surprised me. Maybe it's in a way that we report on it. Maybe we're quite interested in some of those younger women. I would have expected that these younger women would have done better, but there's still this huge male skew, which is just, I think, um, yeah, quite interesting. And <laughs> Some things don't change that much. I don't think the prices were as high, but I do think we probably see shades of the past here, though, don't we? There are occasions where I sometimes think we're sort of reliving the 1980s. <laughs> um, 
And I mean, I just kept thinking, you know, Julian Schnabel and David Saleh and Eric Fischel and Ross Blechner, remember that. And remember the efforts ever since to re-encourage us that these 80s, um, these 80s painters need to be re-shown in museums and galleries and also uh, uh, in commercial shows. And I suppose a bit more recently, we had the whole kind of zombie formalist thing, didn't we, of which, of which Oscar Murillo was one. And he actually has escaped it, hasn't he? And, um, and in fact, he's doing very well again now but there's quite a list of names there you know the sort of Parkeritos and Lucian Smiths and uh, Jacob Cassays of what 10 years ago that uh, had a similar kind of short-lived boom I mean this is going to be the question with these artists isn't it which is I mean I do think a lot of them are very talented artists but whether they will be able to sustain this level of interest and excitement I would have thought is questionable. It's interesting, there's been a lot of um, zombie formalist analogies, obviously a lot of people comparing it to, to them. One thing about these this group of artists, I would say some of them I think are, are great painters, a lot of them are very beautiful painters, they paint, it's largely figurative pieces, you know, the craft of painting is very kind of much to, to the fore and they are they are beautiful works of art but what's interesting here is, is that we all talk about the kind of, uh, the lessons that we should have learned from the zombie formalists and what happened to them but in fact that was quite compared to this that the time frame of that was much much longer we we were only really talking a few hundred thousand dollars um compared to a few million now and now what surprises me is that the speed of the churn is so much faster like now the in artists will probably last like a sale season or two rather than several years before they're sort of cast over for the next and it, it's you know it's fueled by these kind of whatsapp speculators whatsapp dealer kind of speculators and they're, they're fi- finding these artists on instagram all of this kind of thing is kind of is really helping to kind of picking up these artists really cultivating the market quickly and then kind of selling them and, and going on i mean it's a little bit of a pump and dump scheme which is kind of very hard on the artists really incredibly yes yeah, I mean, because they have very, very little control over this. They may do fairly, you know, well on one level initially, but, you know, I was listening to this clip just recently of Robert Rauschenberg in 1973 saying, for Christ's sake, you didn't even send me flowers to the to the collector, Robert Skull, when he sold one of his works. Um, for, I think it was about 85000 when he'd sold it to, um, to him before, for over a decade before, for 900 dollars but this kind of um exchange between them skulls saying well you know actually you should be grateful for me because i'm pulling your prices up but um it seems relevant more relevant now than than ever before that yeah they will get a small artist resale cut from these um auction sales but not a lot more and that's capped at about twelve thousand, i think so they won't um get a huge amount from multi-million sales of their work it's dizzying stuff. We're going to talk about probably the biggest news story of the year in many ways beyond COVID, which is Afghanistan. And um, we had a really striking front page in which we uh, detailed the experience of artists in Afghanistan. Martin, obviously the museum there is is the focus of a lot of attention. Tell us what we know. Well, the museum, the National Museum in Afghanistan in Kabul um, has a fantastic collection, but is very vulnerable. Um, And I was in contact with the director of the museum just um, as the Taliban were coming in. And uh, they were basically locking everything away and securing everything uh, in the hope that they would be allowed um, to reopen when things are easier. We have at the Art Newspaper recently run a report to say that the National Museum has reopened, but rather worryingly, um, it seemed to be mainly Taliban um, people who were being photographed there, and one doesn't know whether the museum is actually under the control of the director and the curators or whether it's effectively 
been taken over by the Taliban. So far, however, there is no evidence of the destruction um, of objects or the looting of objects, which we have seen in the past. Um, but it is a worrying situation, and obviously it's very difficult for everyone in Afghanistan who's involved in the cultural sector at this time. Um, it's very sobering stuff, but we're going to end this discussion actually by talking about art, and I'm going to ask you each for a work of the year, and I'll leave you to interpret it how you see best. Um, let's start with you, Martin. Well, work of the year, I mean, in fact, I've seen very little art um, because of COVID. Um, normally, I'd be travelling a lot, going to museums, seeing exhibitions. And at a wild guess, I should imagine I've seen 10% of the art that I'd see in a normal year. But you won't be surprised, Ben, if I say that my favourite work this year was by Vincent van Gogh. And in particular, I would single out a painting which was sold um, by uh, Christie's in New York, but it travelled to London for a few days, so I saw it there. It was in November, and it was a marvellous landscape from Saint-Rémy uh, with the uh, cypress trees and the olive trees. So it was really typical Van Gogh. But what was wonderful about it was the, the really vibrant turquoise sky and the golden earth, which we so love in, in Van Gogh. Um, it sold for $71 million, if you want to know that. <laughs> Um, and for me, that was the greatest pleasure. It had been exhibited, I think, twice in 1949 and in 1980, but had not been seen since then. So it's wonderful that it came out. It's now disappeared into a private collection. Just very briefly, there's been these Van Gogh experiences cropping up. What do you make of them? Yes, I mean, the immersive experiences or immersive exhibitions, as they sometimes entitle themselves, um, have been uh, a fantastic financial success in the last year or two. They're really big in America and increasingly in Europe too. And um, they're basically an entirely different experience from seeing the real paintings. You see the enlarged Van Gogh motifs, and that's what draws the crowds. They'll see the huge sunflowers, a sunflower petal. Um, they'll see the moon in starry night. Um, and it's really caught on, particularly among young people. Um, I don't want to denigrate it. It is a different experience, and if people go to them and then want to see the real thing, that's fantastic. Great. Jane, your work of the year. So I did decide to uh, interpret this pretty loosely because uh, much like Martin, I realise I have seen much less than I would do normally, but I still saw a lot more than I thought when I started looking back and thinking about this. And I was getting myself really tied up in thinking, oh, I really like this work and I really like that work. And then I realised that I've actually chosen something entirely different. I've chosen an artist collective called Project Artworks. Um, they were one of the groups that were shortlisted for the Turner Prize. And I've chosen them really for two reasons. One, I was really impressed by what they do. Um, they are art school trained artists who are working with what they call neurodivergent artists um, and these are people who I mean some of them are completely non-verbal and have quite challenging behaviour and they all work together as artists they don't make collective works they make individual works of art I mean truthfully they would probably have been my choice for the Turner Prize because I thought what they were showing I mean the power of art to transform people's lives it's really special what they're doing. And I also thought the way you could see how much the artists were leading 
more meaningful lives and how it was transforming the perception um, of us looking at the work that's being created. So that was one reason I chose them. Uh, I think a really, really fantastic project and I'd love to see more projects like this um, around the world. But partly because they are going to be in the next documenta and I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see a major, major exhibition devoted to artist collectives. I have no idea what the show is going to look like. Um, they've released a list at the moment, I think, of about 20 or 30. There's one or two standalone artists in there, but it's mostly collectives. More people are being invited as we go. Uh, goodness knows what Castle is going to look like. But I think it's going to really challenge us to think about what art is and what art is for. Food for thought. Anna, your work of the year. I totally agree with Jane on the collective as well, I have to say. Um, but I also haven't really, haven't left the country for a, almost a couple of years. So um, I would have said Christo's Wrapped Up the Triumph, which I didn't manage to actually go and see. But I'm going to go for something that's like an old friend that I did go and see. It's um, Manet's, a Manet's, a bar at the Folie Bergere in the recently reopened Courtauld Galleries, because it's a painting that I go back to repeatedly to go and see her. The woman behind the bar there is just the most fantastic character, I think, in, in the history of, of art. And um, she looks out at you kind of with this sardonic smile and this slightly raised eyebrow and feeling like she's just seen it all before and she looks so wonderful I'm slightly missing the little sort of bench and it's rather more crowded in there than it was normally when you could just go and sit in front of her and look at her um and so yes I'm going to go choose her because she really is fantastic it's great to have her back it was one of those occasions where it's just lovely to be back in front of a physical work of art like that um in the new galleries which are beautiful um Although I will say that Scott Rayburn who was one of our contributors who went and visited the gallery with me did describe the paint colour as being uh, Farron Ball's old bra white, which I do think is quite a good, quite an apt description of, of the paint colour, but it's very beautiful nonetheless. It's a lovely old bra. Um, so yeah, I'll go with them. Um, the girl at the bar at the Folie Bourget. Indeed. And I'm actually going to choose the work that you didn't see but hoped you would, Anna. Christo and Jean-Claude's Arc de Triomphe wrapped. And it, it was an extraordinary thing to behold it was the first time I'd been abroad since March 2020 and it was every bit as dramatic as I hoped it would be and also the the feat of closing down the Place de Toile in Paris the commitment to public art that that showed um, from the French authorities I thought was really admirable but it also was the strangest object there slap bang in the middle of Paris surrounded by people engaging with it it was a it was a testament to the power of art to transform people's expectations and the power of art just to enter people's lives and, and make them astonished. So, yes, it was a memorable moment indeed. So, thank you all, Martin, Jane and Anna, very much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks, Ben. This conversation was recorded on Wednesday the 15th of December and already there's some news. As Anna pointed out, there were concerns about whether Tefaf Maastricht, the preeminent art fair for old masters and antiques, was going ahead. And indeed, it has been forced to postpone its March 2022 edition as the Omicron variant of COVID-19 spreads across the world. Tefaf will announce a new date in the coming weeks. You can read articles on everything we discussed and much more, of course, on the website and the app. 
And of course, everything we've talked about is covered in our podcast throughout the year. We didn't cover everything today, of course. So if you haven't already, do listen to our podcast on the Chinese treatment of the Uyghur people and what that means for the art world and the podcast in which we explored the effects of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in depth. And of course, numerous conversations on some of the great exhibitions of the year. And that's it for this episode and for this year. You can subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentel and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Anna, Jane and Martin. And to you, our listeners, thanks for joining us this year. We'll see you next year and we're back on the 14th of January. Happy holidays and bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.